Pastor Chris and his family are on a vacation this morning, and so I have the opportunity uh, to, to kind of jump into week two of this series that we have entitled Jacob. But if, before we kind of dive into our passage this morning and, and kind of unpack a little bit about uh, of, of this story, uh, I want to talk to you guys about a TV show first. In July of 2009, the TV show Pawn Stars, P-A-W-N, Pawn Stars, aired for the first time on the History Channel. Now, you, you may be aware of that program. You may not. If you like History Channel or Storage Wars or other things like that, maybe you have an idea of, of what this show is of, about. I've only seen it a handful of times. We don't have cable. Um, but for those of you who are not necessarily in the know on this show, it was pretty popular at a time. At one point, it was one of the highest rated shows on television. Also, if you're not aware of this show, uh, you may not know that it's about a family-run pawn shop on the Vegas Strip. So as you might imagine, as you'd expect, there are some colorful customers who come into this particular pawn shop, which of course adds to the entertainment value for, for those of us who are watching it. And, and really, after the show, it kind of feels like you've been on a park bench people watching for a half hour, right? That's kind of the gist of this, this show, this feeling that you get after, after watching an episode or two. Another entertaining aspect of this show is the items that people bring in, right? And, I mean, you have, again, a variety of different customers bringing in all types of things. And these people will bring in everything from the obscure to the historic. On one particular episode, a customer brought in a cigar box that was owned by John F. Kennedy. Nothing fancy about the cigar box. It, it just looked like a simple wooden box. But the pawn shop bought it for $60,000, right? There was another episode in which someone bought, brought in a, a buoy, you know, a flotation device that was signed by Baywatch star David Hasselhoff, right? They got a little of everything. Um, there is a collection of limited edition cans of Pepsi. Uh, one of my favorites, though, is somebody brought in a potato, like, like a potato, right? You, you're, you're tracking. And, and this potato was said to have been thrown at Martin Luther King Jr. during a march on Washington back in 1963. And the customer who brought it in wanted $100,000 for their potato. They received $2 for their potato. They got $2 for, for their potato. Now, as, as items come in, right, it's the job of the pawn shop employees, the Harrison family, to determine what's real, and what's fake? And as appraisers, they give an assessment or an estimation of the worth, value, or quality of an item. Again, whether big or small, historic or not. They have to answer the question, what's this worth? Now, the majority of us, I would imagine, do not make a living providing appraisals. We are not experts when it comes to establishing the market value of something. However, if you know anything about our senior pastor, Chris Delfs, he would consider him to be, or himself to be, an expert uh, in, in this area, right? He will tell you when you are getting a good deal on something, and he will also be quick to let you know when he is not getting a good deal on something, right? 
but, but all of us maybe wouldn't classify ourselves in that same category, right? But how, whether we are, are good at this or not, we are constantly, all of us, we're constantly making assessments of the worth, value, or quality of things, experiences, and people. We ask ourselves questions like, am I getting a good deal on this car? Am I getting a good deal on this television? Am I getting a good deal on this pair of shoes, this experience, whatever, whatever it is, right? Am I getting a good deal? Or we ask ourselves the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it for me to make that trip, spend that amount of time? We may ask ourselves a question of, is this the right person? Is this the right person for the job? Is this the right person to be my spouse, right? All types of questions relating to people as we try to figure out their value and worth. Now, obviously, child of God, God's creation, they all have value, but we know what we're talking about, right? When we're assessing someone's character, skills, ability, we ask ourselves those kind of questions. Now, whenever the guys on Pawn Stars misjudge the value of something, it typically comes at a cost, there was one instance where one of their employees purchased a few fake Rolex watches to the tune of $4,000. Poof, gone, right? That money is lost because it was an inaccurate assessment of the value of that item. They also purchased fake diamonds and lost $25,000 in that exchange. And again, while, while most of us aren't in the appraisal business, you and I, we also suffer consequences whenever we misjudge the value, worth, or quality of something. Perhaps you've lost money on a bad deal, right? You still have regrets about that timeshare, right? You, you still are upset about that. Maybe you have had to deal with the costs of hiring the wrong person due to poor assessment of their abilities or characters. And so, or character. So, so now you're stuck paying that individual a severance package. You're working to repair the damage done to your company, to your organization. At some point, right, we've all found ourselves in a situation that has caused us to say, well, that wasn't worth it, right? That was not worth it, whatever that be, is, right? And in those scenarios, we simply did not do a good job of accurately assessing the value of that experience, whatever it was. Now, this morning, we're going to take a look at a passage in Scripture that deals with misappraisal and the consequences that come as a result of that poor assessment. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis 25 or open up your Bible app and go to Genesis 25. We'll be spending the majority of our time there this morning. We'll look at a number of other passages as well, but we're going to unpack some things from this particular chapter. And, and while you're turning there, I simply want to allow me to bring you up to speed on what's been going on in this chapter, in this story, just in case you weren't able to join us last week. Now, last Sunday, we began a series entitled Jacob. And as you might expect, we're taking a look at the life of this biblical character, this Old Testament figure, Jacob. Now, we, we kind of started this story, though, prior to Jacob talking about his, his parents. Now, after being barren for years, a number of years, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, she gets pregnant 
with twins. Now, prior to having my own kids, <laughs> I, I got three little ones, right? Four, two, and my little dude, he just turned one. So uh, prior to having my own kids, eh, twins sounds like a fun idea, right? That, that, sounds, that sounds like, hey, this would be a lot of fun. They get to wear matching outfits, right? They get to play sports together. They'll be best friends for life. But then you have your first kid, and reality sets in, right? And with each subsequent pregnancy, my biggest prayer was, God, just let it be one, right? Just let it be one. I don't care what the gender is, Doc. I just want to know, is there only one heartbeat, right? That's all I wanted to know, right? Twins, that's, that's just, that's, that's, wow, that's a lot, right? That's a lot in triplets. That just ain't nice. That's just not nice at all, right? I only want one. <laughs> at least one at a time. <laughs> but here's the thing, right? As, as we started to unpack this story and, and what we realized last week is, is that, man, we, I can have a soft spot in my heart for Isaac because not only did he ha or they have twins, but he was 60 years old when they were born, right? That, the fact that he survived his own life circumstances is evidence of God's grace, right? That's really all you need, that, that he survived in that household with twins when they were born and, and, and he was 60. God's grace is all over that situation, right? Now, eventually, we kind of move on in the story, and, and Rebecca gives birth to twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Esau, the firstborn, came out looking red and hairy, kind of like Sasquatch, right? I mean, it was, it was like a human rug that was born. And, and therefore, his parents, not necessarily original, but his parents gave him the name Esau, which means Harry, right? A very descriptive name, right? Unfortunate. And then Jacob comes along, the younger brother, and he came out holding on to his brother's heel. And so they gave him the name Jacob, meaning heel grabber. However, in a figurative sense, Jacob also means he deceives. And we talked a little bit about that last week as well. Now, more than Isaac and Rebekah probably realized at that particular time, Jacob would live up to his name. I want to dive into our passage this morning, starting in Genesis 25, verses 27 and 28. And in a way, these two verses set the scene for what's about to unfold in the passage that we're looking at this morning. So allow me to read verses 27 and 28. It says, The boys grew up. And Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So in verse 27, it begins by saying, the boys grew up. So we kind of fast forward a bit. We fast forward a number of years, thus skipping their childhood in a sense. And, and verse 27 also lets us know what these boys are like. It kind of gives us a little bit of insight into who these guys really are. Now Esau is described as a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, right? As I see things from my perspe uh, perspective, this guy would probably fit in well with the cast of Duck Dynasty, right? I mean, Bear Grylls would be this guy's friend. He's a man of the open country. He's a skillful hunter. He's probably driving a pickup truck and always wearing camo, right? That is Esau, right? This is just our picture of him, right? And then you have Jacob, and Jacob is described as a quiet man, 
staying among the tents. And I know, guys, like you first read that and you're like, bummer, right? That is an unfortunate description, right? It's not exactly what you want to be known for. Like, oh, hey, do you know Derek? Yeah, he's that quiet guy. He kind of stays at home, doesn't do a whole lot, right? Nobody wants to be known as that if you're a guy, right? And so it doesn't sound all that great, right? But the description is not all bad, though, right? What it actually means, or what that truly means, is that Jacob was civilized, right? He was sophisticated. And so he'd be more likely to wear a suit and drive a Beamer, right? So he's just different. It's not a bad description. It's just different. And so we learn right away, right at the outset of the passage that we're looking at this morning, these guys are different. These brothers are different, very different from one another. Verse 28 also provides us with an interesting piece of information about Isaac and Rebekah, the parents. And and we find out that they each had a favorite kid, right? Now, if you have kids, you at least know that's frowned upon, right? Like, you shouldn't have a favorite kid. We may, right? But you you shouldn't at least, like, out yourself as that. They don't have any option. It's in the Bible that they have a favorite kid, right? So there's no getting around it for them. They can't even deny it. But they each have a favorite kid. Esau loved, or Isaac loved Esau, and Rebekah favored Jacob. Now, it's, it's probably not the best practice when it comes to parenting, but that was their reality. And, and while it may not be the best practice, I can appreciate Isaac's reasoning, right? I, I really can appreciate Isaac's reasoning for picking Esau. If one of my kids starts bringing me steak and burgers and bacon, they'd become my favorite too, right? Like, thanks, Vera. I love you the most, right? I mean, that's just, that's just how it would happen. If they start bringing me meat, let's go, right? I'm, I'm all in for that. So I can at least appreciate Isaac's picking of, of Esau. <laughs> but here's the thing. As we even read these two verses and begin to unpack this story, after reading verse 28, you can't help but wonder if the split parental favoritism furthered the divide between Esau and Jacob, which, if you remember from last week, began while they were in the womb. In Genesis 25, verse 22, it says the babies jostled each other within her. They hadn't even been born yet, and the brothers were fighting, right? And we already know how different these boys were in verse 27. And, and now you add in this parental favoritism and how the favoritism is, is split even with the parents. And you just have to wonder, this continued to, to drive a wedge. And, and this seemingly growing divide between Esau and Jacob is what sets the stage for what happens next. Follow along with me as I read verses 29 and 30. It says, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Now Esau has been in the great outdoors, right? He's a man of the open country. And and we're not sure how long he's been away doing whatever he's doing in the open country, right? Shooting at stuff, right? We're not sure how long he's been, been out there, but the Bible doesn't tell us that detail, but we, we do know when he returns, he feels famished. The English Standard Version, the ESV, uses the word exhausted. And so Esau, when, when he does make his appearance and he does return to home, if you will, uh, Esau finds Jacob in the tents where you'd expect him to be, and he happens to be cooking some stew. Now Esau, feeling extremely tired, 
and extremely hungry, asks Jacob for some stew. The NIV says, let me have some of that red stew. Where the ESV changes it slightly, it says, let me eat some of that red stew. And and the reason I draw your attention to this slight difference is because the word eat in Hebrew means, this particular word that was used, it means to swallow greedily or to devour. It's how my son Reuben eats his graham crackers, right? It's like, easy, son, one at a time. This dude just shovels it in. And and this particular word now, it kind of gives us an idea of how hungry Esau really is. Some commentators even wonder if Esau felt as if he was going to starve to death. But whether on the brink of starvation or not, we know this dude really wants some food, right? He is hungry. And thankfully, thankfully for Esau, Jacob happens to be cooking some stew. However, the Hebrew word for cooking is also very interesting, something I want to draw your attention to as well. Now, as you might expect, uh, it, it has, or I should say, it has the meaning you'd expect it to have. It means to boil, right? He's literally cooking something in that moment. But that's not all it means. It also means to act presumptuously or to act arrogantly. In other words, Jacob is not just cooking stew. He's also cooking up a plan, right? He sees an opportunity to take advantage. He is stirring the pot, if you will. See what I did there? Stew, stir the pot. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) But here's the thing. He's not concerned that his plan is, is rash and is bold and is inconsiderate. He's just being who he is. A deceiver. Let's read verses 31 to 34 to see how his plan unfolds. Follow along with me. It says, Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. You see, in exchange for this stew, this bowl of soup, if you will, Jacob requires that Esau sell him his birthright. And and initially, this seems like an odd thing to ask for. Like, why would Jacob want Esau, his older brother's, birthright. And you may wonder that same question yourself. However, once you understand the significance of the birthright, Jacob's desire to have it makes sense. As Pastor Chris explained last week, the birthright is the oldest son's share of the material estate of the family. And not only that, the firstborn would receive a double share or a double portion of that material inheritance and so in this case Esau was in line to receive two-thirds of his father's estate and Jacob one-third now this would have been painful enough for the second child right 
Pastor Chris talked about last week as, as the firstborn, he would like to reinstitute this policy, right? And he was like, hey, that's something that we should get back to doing. Well, I would like to tell you today as the secondborn, that is a terrible idea, right? That is the terrible I- idea. We should, we should have nothing to do with that anymore, right? But here's the thing, right? This, this would have been painful for the second child. Like, ah, I just missed out on being in the money, right? Or significantly so. But how much more of a bummer would it have been for a twin, right? I mean, Jacob was born minutes, even seconds later than his older brother. And yet his brother receives twice as much. It's probably not a stretch to say that Esau or excuse me, that Jacob may have been dealing with some bitterness, and he may have been wrestling with some jealousy. But whether or not he was bitter, whether or not he was jealous, it was Jacob who understood the value of the birthright, and he wanted it for himself. And so, in essence, he sets a trap for his older brother Esau. And in a very real and ironic sense, the hunter becomes the hunted, right? It's Esau, like a hungry animal who walks into a trap due to his desire for food. And it's in this moment that we begin to, to see the fulfillment of the prophecy told to Rebekah by God in verse 23 regarding her sons. Genesis 25, 23 says, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. You see, the selling of the birthright is only the beginning of their role reversal. It's also in this moment that we see Jacob start to live out the figurative meaning of his name. He deceives. Jacob has devised a plan to take what belongs to his older brother. And we find Esau's response to Jacob's demands in verse 32. I want to read that for us one more time. It says, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? Now, as we previously mentioned just a few moments ago, we're not sure if Esau was truly starving or if he was simply exaggerating. Certainly, if he was truly starving, then he's right. His birthright would do no good if he's dead. It would have no value to him if he loses his life. However, regardless of Esau's condition. The original readers of this passage, those who had been living in this specific time, those who had have read this story first, the original readers of this passage would have been shocked by Esau's words. That he would be so flippant with something like the birthright. Why? Because the, the value of the birthright went beyond dollars and cents. It was beyond, it was bigger than material possessions. The birthright held intrinsic value. Yet that did not stop Esau from selling his birthright for a meal. His assessment of the value of the birthright led him to choose a meal over the right to inherit. Therefore, in verse 34, uh, it says Esau despised his birthright. 
And, and, and to be clear, he didn't despise it in the emotional sense of the word, right? He, it's not like he's like, oh, I, I hate my birthright. That's not what it's talking about. Esau despised it in that he considered it to have little value. He considered it to, to have little worth. Now, what you and I know now and what Esau failed to, re, uh, to, to understand, to see in that moment, is the great significance, worth, and value of his birthright. And unfortunately for Esau, his inaccurate estimation of the worth of his birthright comes at an enormous cost to him. Obviously, in giving up his birthright, Esau loses out on a significant amount of material wealth, right? That's kind of what first comes to our minds. In the very next chapter, Genesis 26, verses 12 to 14, we learn that Isaac, Esau's father, becomes very wealthy. Two-thirds of that wealth would have eventually belonged to Esau. But for whatever reason, he did not consider his birthright to be a worthwhile possession. More importantly, Esau suffers great spiritual loss as a result of giving up his birthright. We see how the author of Hebrews describes Esau in Hebrews 12, verse 16. It says, See that no one is sexually immoral, or catch this, or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. In talking about this particular passage, one commentator writes, Esau is described as godless or unholy in the book of Hebrews because of his misplaced values that lead to his unwise decision to give up his inheritance. For something as valueless as a meal, simply a means of gaining immediate gratification for physical hunger pains, he foolishly gave up his right as the firstborn. Another commentator writes, while Jacob is not innocent, certainly he's not, the narrative in Genesis 25 focuses on the unworthiness of Esau. When Esau is shown rejecting the values of his family heritage, he is set aside and cut off from God's blessing. You see, Esau's inability to accurately assess the value of his birthright costs him dearly. Now, as we read this story, as we hear this story, it's easy for us to condemn Esau, right? It's easy pickings. I mean, we think, this guy's a moron, right? He is an absolute moron. How could you make that exchange? How could you trade something that has so much value for so little? How could you exchange something for such great value for something that will only satisfy you for a few hours? How could you be that short-sighted? How could you easily give up something that God has blessed you with and has called you to value? How could you do that? But before you go too far down that road, you might want to pump the brakes a little bit. 
I want us to think through what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Allow me to read this familiar passage to us. It says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You see, this, this passage in Matthew comes to mind for me because I don't know that we are much different from Esau. See, as we know from this passage that we just unpacked, we know that he failed to give appropriate value to the God-given birthright, to his God-given birthright. And that simply begs the question of us, are we giving appropriate value to the things God calls us to value? Do our priorities fall in line with the things that God wants us to prioritize? Based on the way I live my life, do I value what God values? Allow me to give a few examples of what we're talking about. God calls us to value our purity. In 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul simply writes, Keep yourself pure. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. In Job 31.1, we see Job striving to live in purity. He says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. God calls us to value our marriage. The author of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 4, says this, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. God calls us to value our integrity. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, one of the Ten Commandments, it says, You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Don't lie. Leviticus 19, verses 35 and 36 says, Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights, an honest ephah and an honest hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. God calls us to value fellowship with one another, with other believers. He calls us to value corporate worship. Acts 2.42, talking about the early church. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Hebrews 10, verse 25, says, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. God calls us to value Good stewardship. When you have the opportunity, read through Matthew 25, verses 14 and 30. An entire parable talking about good stewardship. 
Not only with our financial resources, our material possessions, but being a good steward with the abilities that we have been given by God. We have to ask ourselves the question, are we giving appropriate value to these things? Are we giving appropriate value to these things as well as the other areas we don't have time to address? You see, God calls us to value our purity. Yet our assessment of its worth is low when we decide that we're going to move in with a boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage. God calls us to value our marriage. But are we doing that when we view pornography? Are we valuing our future marriage when we view pornography? God calls us to value our integrity. Yet we're willing to forsake it when we claim to live at an address that is not our own so our kids can go to a different school. That is what it costs you in that moment. That's your integrity. That's what it's worth to you. By the way, we live in Elk Grove. There ain't any bad schools. God calls us to value fellowship and corporate worship with other believers. Yet higher priority is given to sporting events three out of four Sundays a month. God calls us to value good stewardship. But we're willing to go in debt for things we don't really need. See, the reality is, we're more like Esau than we probably care to admit. We're all guilty of despising things that God calls us to value. And unfortunately, the similarities don't end there. See, as was the case with Esau, when we fail to assign appropriate value to the things we ought to value, our misappraisal will always bite us in the rear. Always. And of course, the consequences that you and I face for failing to assign appropriate value, they may be different, but generally speaking, the consequences often come in the form of losing out on blessings from God, stunted spiritual growth, missed opportunities for ministry and service, and perhaps most significant, a damaged testimony. Nobody likes hypocritical Christians. Genesis 25, 34 says, Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. It was almost as if Esau was unaware of what he had just done. It was almost as if he didn't realize the weight of his actions. See, there's a little Esau in all of us. But our story doesn't have to end the same way. It's not too late for us to realize the significance of our actions and do something about it. As Pastor Chris mentioned last week, the story of Jacob is a picture of God's grace. And you and I had the opportunity to experience that grace this morning. Perhaps you realize at some point this morning that you haven't been assigning the proper amount of value to certain areas of your life. Maybe you already knew that to be true, that certain areas of your life have been devalued, and you know you're experiencing some of the consequences. But whatever the case may be, 
Today is a great day to seek God's forgiveness and begin working to place greater value on what God values. Now, certainly that's easier said than done, right? If that wasn't the case, we'd all be doing it. But this is easier said than done. And in order for us to begin valuing what God values, prioritizing what he wants us to prioritize, we got to keep in mind what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Catch this. It's awfully hard for us to devalue what God considers valuable when the things of God are at the top of our priority list. When we're chasing after God's heart, as we sang about this morning, when we're truly doing that, it's hard to place lower value on the things that God wants us to be chasing after. So may God pour out his grace on us as we strive to value what he values. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the challenge that it brings to us. God, I, I seek my own forgiveness in this moment for not always valuing the things that you want me to value. Certainly not prioritizing the things you want me to prioritize, God. And I pray that that would be the prayer of, of others here in, this morning. God, it's so hard to do that on our own. So help us to rely on you, to press into you, that you will help us chase after your heart. God, we're, we're, we're counting on your grace. We're counting on your strength. God, power from you to do what you're calling us to do. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.